So we are in a series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's journeying through what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus actually titles it The Gospel of the Kingdom in chapter four, so that's what I call it. And uh, we're reading the Bible to look at it. So I want you to listen to what Jesus says about the Bible. It's interesting. Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. We would call that the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So every week, if you're here, we open this book and we study it. So what is this book that we hold? There are some ideas out there. I think some people have the idea that the Bible is like a magic book. Like it has its own kind of magic to it. So many years ago, I was helping a man who had got himself entangled in drugs and drug deals and all these things. And there were bad people trying to get him. And he would come on Sunday and be full of fear. And he'd say, please pray for me. And I would say, I'll pray for you, but know this. I'm not afraid of bad drug dealers trying to come get me because I don't get involved in that stuff. So start planting good seed, get away from that garbage, start making good decisions, right? And I'd pray for him. And the next week, he'd come all afraid. And then one Sunday, I saw him, and he was smiling and happy. I'm like, what's up? He goes, I'm not afraid anymore. I said, well, why not? He said, this is why. And he pulled out of his shirt pocket one of those little New Testament Psalms, Gideon Bibles, you know, the little ones. He goes, I've been carrying this around all week. And man, I feel so safe now. I said, are you obeying it? Well, no. Are you reading it? No. I said, the only way that Bible will keep you safe then is if when the bad guys come to shoot you, it hits the Bible. That's the only way, right? That it's not some kind of magic charm that we kind of hold on to and gives us power or something but there's that idea. Or some people play what I call Bible roulette, right? We don't ever read our Bibles. We don't touch them until we're in just disaster. And we're like, I need a word from the Lord. And we just randomly, we open the Bible and just put, put our finger down on something. Does that work? Well, many years ago, probably five, six, my kids had put together these little care packages around Christmas. They put a Bible in it. They put like a pair of socks in it. They put like a letter in it. And they put like some treats in it. And it was in a Ziploc bag and they just, we'd be around town around Christmas and they'd give them out to people. So my daughter, my oldest daughter, saw this guy and she wanted to give him one. So she gave it to him and the guy's like, ah, oh, Bible. And he pulls it out. He goes, let me read something for you. And he just randomly opens it up, puts his finger down, 
starts reading. He's in Song of Solomon. It was literally, let me kiss you with the kisses of my lips. I'm like, no, get away, bro. <laughs> like that does not work. So there's this idea, it's magic, it's not. It's ink on paper, right? And the second idea is not it's a magic book, it's just man's wisdom. That some people lived a long time ago, they kind of understood life at a certain kind of level and they wrote out their wise ways and uh, archetypal stories of how to live life. And that Jesus isn't divine, he's just kind of another person and it's great and wonderful and he's an example for us to live life. That's what Jesus is. Okay, so people like that are Thomas Jefferson and there's a Thomas Jefferson Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson did was this. He decided, you know, there's some wisdom in this book and there's some stuff that I don't like. So he cut out all the pieces he liked, pasted them to a piece of paper and made his own Bible that's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can look at it. So he decided what was wise and he decided what was not wise. So it's just man's wisdom. Well, there's a couple problems with that. Number one, if this book is just man's wisdom and I get to pick and choose what I obey or what I listen to, then guess what? God can never confront me then. God can never disagree with me then. God can never change me then because I'm always just, no, I don't agree with that part. So the Bible simply becomes an echo chamber of what I already believe. And ultimately I become my own God. That I eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil and decide for myself how I want to live. That's what happens, right? And, and then the other part of this is, if Jesus is just an example for me to follow, doesn't that kill you? Like who can actually be like Jesus? Who, when they're getting nails pounded into their flesh can say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If Jesus is just my example, then his example kills me because there's no way I can be like him. The opposite happens with it. Right? So man's wisdom, magic book. And then the last one is, this book is a power grab. That it was put together by men a couple thousand years ago, and they kind of put together the Bible in order to control the masses. So if you've ever read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, that's the idea behind it. If you've watched the movie Book of Eli, the protagonist wants the Bible for one reason. I can use it to control people. So there's this idea that scripture is put together and it's not God authored, it's not God breathed, it's men put it together so that they control other men, get money from them, tell them to live a certain way and they'll get God's blessing. Now, if that's true, if the Bible is put together by men trying to say, listen, if you live this way, if you live according to how I tell you, according to how the Bible tells you, you're gonna be blessed. If that's true, power grab, why would anyone include the book of Job? right? Live like Job. Be number one on earth. God himself says, no one is as righteous as my servant Job on the entire face of the earth. And what happens to Job? Does he just reap God's blessings? No, all of his kids die. All of his houses are destroyed. He was a very wealthy man. Like winds came, blew him over, killed all his kids in it. Fires came, right? His his flocks, his camels, his donkeys, his goats, they were all either destroyed or stolen from him, right? His health is gone. So bad is his health that he ends up literally sitting on a garbage dump and scratching his wounds with an old piece of glass. The only thing that is left is guess what? His wife. 
and she is a gem. <laughs> the bottom of life, right? Job is at the bottom. His wife comes to him, and this is the encouragement she gives to him. Do you hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Which I'm sure Job was like, thanks, babe. That help? Awesome. I was hoping it's well with my soul, but you know, curse God and die, that works too. Like, how does that ever work? You would never include that book. So there's these ideas that are nuts. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, atheist, died a couple of years ago. He wrote a book called this, God is not good, how religion poisons everything. And his premise of that book is real simple. The Bible's not good. That it's ruined the world. Here's the only problem with that. The very freedom Christopher Hitchens has to criticize the Bible came from the Bible. Do you know that? Try to go to Saudi Arabia and criticize the Quran and see what happens to you. Try to go, try to, go to Iran or Iraq and criticize the Quran and see what happens to you. A mob will pummel and kill you, right? Ask newspapers in Europe. Ask uh, what Rushdie, the author, who still has a death sentence on him from the Ayatollah of Iran, right? The very freedom to criticize this book came from this book. So if you don't know this, I believe the opposite about the Bible. It's done more to promote what we believe than anything else. So in the 17th century, these smart dudes got together, some believers, some not believers. Guys like John Milton, Benedict Spinoza, Thomas Hart, John Locke, like really brilliant guys. And they studied the Bible. And out of that study came what they call the five principles for civilization. Number one, social contract. That just because we live in community, we have a certain responsibility to each other. Jesus might say, love your neighbor. Number two, limits, moral limits of power. Just because you're the king doesn't mean you can rape and pillage that there are moral limits to your power, number two. Number three, the doctrine of toleration. We get toleration wrong today. Toleration is literally how I tolerate someone I disagree with. Not everyone has to agree to the same thing. That's not toleration. That's just uh, being, being formed in the same mold. Toleration is how do I treat someone I categorically disagree with? And the Bible says, love your enemies. That's what the Bible says. Doctrine of toleration. Liberty of conscience. Every person has been given a conscience by God and they can make decisions for themselves. And then lastly, basic human rights. 17th century. Those principles have guided the Western world until right about now. And now they're starting to disintegrate. But the way we got the world today, Western world, is because of this book right here. So I don't believe it's a magic book. Don't believe it's man's wisdom. Don't believe it's power grab. I believe what Jesus says about the Bible. And he says two things about scripture. He says, it's precise and it will be persistent. Check this out. First, precise. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, I didn't come to cut out, abolish, do away with the law. 
Now, maybe some of us wish Jesus had said, I came to abolish the law, because then we could deconstruct the Bible too, and we could be Thomas Jefferson's deciding what we want and what we don't want. That's not what Jesus says. He says, in fact, not one iota, not one dot. If you're a King James Version only guy, not one what? Jot or tittle. The smallest parts of the, not uh, T being crossed or an I being dotted will pass away until all of it's fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying about scripture is this. This is the way that God runs the universe and nothing will not be accomplished. Every prophecy will come true. Every promise will be kept. Every warning and threat will come true. That God's word isn't just true, it's actually coming true every day. And if you look at the world around us, you say it is coming true every single day that it accomplishes exactly what God wants it to accomplish. And so with that, Jesus then makes application to us. Look at this, verse 19. Therefore, therefore is a really good circle in your Bible. It's now saying, because of this truth about God's word, therefore, whoever relaxes, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What is that? What are least commands? You think it's murder and adultery? You think those are the least commands in the Bible? Probably not. Those are pretty big ones, right? What are the least commands? Maybe commands like this. Leviticus 19.28, you shall not tattoo yourselves. Whoop-dee. I thought if I ever got a tattoo, I'd get Leviticus 19.28. Because why not? What's Leviticus 19.28? It's don't get tattoos. <laughs> That'd be a conversation starter, huh? Or how about this one? You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. We all need to look like wild men. Just, all right? So if you got a haircut, hmm. How about this one? Leviticus eleven twelve. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. You like eating shrimp? You're going to hell. All right, you are a lawbreaker. How about this one? Leviticus 19.19, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You like the new like polyester cotton blend, you know, whatever these are that are stretchy? I like them. Turns out I'm going to hell too. Or lastly, how about this one? Leviticus 19.19, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. So you like salsa, so you plant some tomatoes and some jalapenos. Well, you're going somewhere hot then, okay? What is Jesus talking about? And there is a lot, a lot of stuff that goes back and forth in theology on this, okay? So does it mean you're gonna be the least in the kingdom because you're in the kingdom? Does it mean if you're doing this that you'll just barely make it into heaven? You just kind of skim your way in, but you're gonna be the janitor 
or JV, or you're gonna be way in the back, right, with a secondhand robe, no harp, and no backstage pass. You're not talking to Jesus. Like, what does this mean? And I'll never discount, like the Bible does tell us, how we live on earth matters. Matthew 25, parable of the talents. Really sobering text. How I live right now is going to echo into eternity. But you gotta know this. The gospel of the kingdom is not about heaven. It's about right now. It's about how we live right now. That's why Jesus' prayer is that your kingdom comes on earth as it is already in heaven. That this is about how you and I are to be living in the kingdom right now. So it's not that out there. So minimally, here's what this means. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that if, if I don't take seriously scripture, if I don't take seriously what Jesus said, then I'm gonna miss out on possibilities. Then if I read the Bible to decide what I like and what I don't like, I'm cutting it up, Thomas Jefferson style. If that's how I'm treating the Bible, then guess what? I will never meet the possibility that God has for me. I'm gonna be missing out. I'm gonna be the least. I'm gonna be falling short. But the opposite is just as true because the end of that verse says this. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If I have a high view of scripture like Jesus does, not a jot or tittle is gonna pass away, then what happens to me is I get under the Bible's authority. It's able to shape me in the way I'm supposed to be shaped, correct me where I need to be corrected, encourage me when I need to be encouraged, and it has a power to it that actually transforms me, that that's what this book has, that it's living and it's quick and it's powerful. Jesus is really saying minimally, what is your attitude towards scripture? What's your attitude towards it? If it's, I come to scripture to be transformed and changed, man, it has power. If I come to scripture, changing it to conform to my image, not, it won't do anything for you. Brilliant. And it says, if you teach it. I mean, I don't teach the Bible. Yes, you do. Last week, remember I said, you are salt and you are light. That people don't turn to scripture to find out what a Christian is like. You know how they find out what a Christian is like? They look at your light. All of us are teachers. Everyone that has professed the name of Jesus, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, people are looking at us to find out what's a Christian like. And do we respond with a Christian worldview when we talk to them, because we're teaching. So you got a friend that's making some radical life decisions. They're changing things up a lot. How do you respond to them when they're looking for wisdom? Do you say to them, hey, bro, you got to do whatever makes you happy? Confirming about 50 cultural lies right now, contrary to scripture that says, you know what? Hard's not bad. Count it all joy when you fall into hard times. Do we respond scripturally or culturally? Or you know, people have this relational drama between them and it's really bad and it's really bad. Do we say to them, hey, you gotta get away from that toxicity. You gotta get away from that negativity. Or do we say, you know what? Jesus commands us to be reconciled. That we're supposed to look at the beam in our own eye. That we're supposed to confess our own sins. That we're supposed to get straight with 
our maker first, and then we can see clearly enough to then approach them and say, this is what happened. This is how you hurt me. We're supposed to forgive as we've been forgiven. Do we answer with a Christian worldview? Because we're always teaching. And when we do, when we come underneath God's authority and we say, I want the words of my mouth to represent you well as your ambassador, something happens to us and we become great. Well, time out, Matt. I'm still confused about the law. Do we have to keep it? Can I eat shrimp? Because I like shrimp. Can I get a tattoo? Because I want to get a tattoo. Do I have to not wear 100% cotton Levi's and that's it? What's the deal here? Look back at verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes, keeps perfectly the 613 do's and don'ts of scripture. And the Bible says that when we, by faith, believe in what Jesus has done, we have his same righteousness imputed to us. So here's the best text that kind of summarizes a very complex subject. But it's in the book of Galatians. And it's Paul talking about this change. This is what he says, Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Before Jesus, before we put our faith in Jesus, either one, before that point, it's the law. It imprisons us until the coming faith should be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. What's the law? Our guardian. It guards us. It keeps us from going crazy until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What's a guardian? The law, right? It says it in the previous verse. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. The law had a certain time when it was effective and it was doing its job. And then once Jesus comes in my heart personally, then I get imputed because of the righteousness of Jesus, that same fulfilling of the law. That's what happens. Maybe here's a way to explain it. So um, we got a wood stove eight, nine years ago. And Myron was my first like toddler he was about 18 months old that was in our house when we had a wood stove. All the other kids were older by then. And so for Myron, I had one law for him, one house law. Don't touch the wood stove. It's hot, right? That was it. 18 months old, don't touch the wood stove. So uh, one day, wood stove's blaring, and Myron's over there looking at the wood stove. So I repeated to him, bro, don't touch the wood stove. The law is a guardian to you. It's keeping you safe. Right? I look away, I do something. I look back and he's holding his finger like this. I said, did you touch the wood stove? And he just starts bawling. Pick him up, comfort him, right? He's got one law, don't touch the wood stove. Elijah though, my eight-year-old, a little bit older, a little bit more mature, he had a different law. The law he had was this, keep the house warm. What that meant was go out, get wood, fill up the wood box, and start fires, hopefully in the wood stove, right? That was his law, right? 
So he had graduated, if you was, because he was older, he got the heart behind a wood stove. So he could touch the wood stove, he could open the wood stove, he could put wood in the wood stove, because it was a different time for him. That's what's being said here. There's a time when we just need, don't touch the wood stove, it's hot. Because grace has not been awakened in me. Because I've not been given that new heart and new spirit that I'm required to have in order to fulfill things. So it's don't touch the wood stove. But then faith comes and grace comes and it awakens me and Jesus' imputed righteousness is given to me and now, now I'm not under the law anymore. Well, that's great, Matt. Does that mean I can do whatever I want? Aha, Jesus knew you'd say that. Jesus knew I'd say that. Here's what Jesus then says. This is the persistent nature of this book. Verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Everyone listening to Jesus right here would have been like, what? It'd be like saying this, unless your basketball skills exceed that of Michael Jordan, you're not getting to heaven. And he is the goat, totally. Unless your righteousness is better than Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, you're out. Unless you save more people than Billy Graham, love more orphans and widows than Mother Teresa, you can't get into heaven. This would have shocked them. This is a high, incredible, crazy level that Jesus is asking for right here. Here's why. The gospel of the kingdom is not about external compliance. The scribes and Pharisees were brilliant at checklisting off the 613 laws. They did it perfectly. Outward compliance. Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom is about internal transformation. Read ahead, because now he's going to explain exactly what he means by this. He's going to talk about anger. We'll look at that last, next week. Anger and murder, right? Jesus says, hey, you haven't murdered somebody. Awesome. You haven't taken a baseball bat to your neighbor. Brilliant. That's wonderful. He says, but if you have anger, if you have anger, you're in danger. See, the gospel, the kingdom is going for something much more deep. It's not just the outward action. It's inward motivations that the very seed of murder is anger, and that's the problem, that Jesus is saying, listen, in the kingdom, it's not enough not to be a murderer, to check that box. If you sit at home and see, and you're bitter, and your teeth are gritted, and you hate that person in your heart over and over and over again, that's not enough. We gotta take care of the root problem. We gotta get after that. And so Jesus is gonna say over and over, he's gonna say this, he's gonna say, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you, on lust, on divorce, on taking oaths, on retaliation, on prayer, on fasting, on giving. If you do these three good things for the wrong motives, Jesus just said, it's worth nothing, it is worthless. So what Jesus is after is something brilliantly different than what the law could ever produce. What he's wanting is people that have been transformed by the gospel, going way, 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 way further than the righteousness of Pharisees 
and scribes, that we become a quality of people that desire Jesus as our king and wanna live in his kingdom. That's what Jesus is after. And this book is a tool he uses to do it. So let me sum it up this way. I think most people throughout the 2,000 years of Christendom want a kingdom without a king. We want the benefits of the kingdom, peace and joy and flourishing. We want rid of anxiousness and triggers and stress and guilt and shame. We want a transcendent purpose that makes it life worth living. We want want the kingdom, but we don't really want a king telling us what to do. So we count his commands as least. We use grace as an excuse. I can't do that. We discount what the king says. We want the kingdom without the king. So Jesus will say in this text that we're gonna get to, love your enemy. Right now, think of the person that you can't stand. Jesus says, you're to love them. And what do we say? No, I can't do that. They'll take advantage of me. You don't know what they did to me. We count his commands as least. We discount them. Jesus says, if someone hits you on your right cheek, turn your other cheek. Are we doing that in Grants Pass? I mean, everyone here is concealed carry. Like, we don't do that. That's an excuse to kill someone. All right, he did it, man. I'm blowing him away. Because we count his words as the least. We do it all the time. Jesus says, sell everything and give it away. And what do we say? No, mine. That's irresponsible. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We say, no way. I have to act authentically on what is my truth. And we count what he says as least. Jesus says to be great in this kingdom, you have to learn to be the servant of all. In every business book you read, every CEO book you read, every, hey, make yourself better book you read says this, you gotta make sure you take your talents and your time and use them to maximize your potential, right? The CEO is like, I can't do that. I'm not cleaning toilets. I gotta maximize my potential. And we count his words as nothing, we do it all the time. Because most of us, myself included, want a king without, are we on a kingdom without the king? But Jesus minimally is saying this, he expects his followers to do what he says. And I think a lot of us, we've lost our saltiness and our light because we don't. And we look exactly like our culture because we've discounted what he says, that's impossible, it can't happen, I won't do it. So Jesus is going to go really for this whole next section. He's going to rewrite scripture. You've heard it said of old, but I, the king, come to you. I'm coming to you and I'm going to tell you something brilliantly different and better. I'm going to come, right? And then when you and I, because of his grace and his mercy and his goodness, have a new spirit given to us and we have a new heart given to us, we actually have the power to do it. Unlike every other Generation before Jesus, they didn't have a new heart and a new spirit, so they couldn't do it. And when we do, here's what happens. You live an honest, pure life. That's what happens. Things line up. Instead of having these like divided thoughts and divided life, and you're like, can't, all of a sudden you become genuine. 
because your heart's desire lines up with what your king's commands are and you live in the kingdom and you get all the beauty and all the mess and all the abundance and all the peace and all the grace because you're actually living authentically as a Christian. That's what Jesus is asking us. Do we count his commands as great? Exploring, like I read the Bible not to find some wisdom. I read the Bible to find Jesus and say, what are my king's commands? That's how I read the Bible. That's what I want. I know my way leads to destruction. I want his way. And when Jesus says, the least shall be the greatest, it actually means something. And the table, isn't the table the best example of that? The greatest, God himself becomes a babe at Bethlehem, washes feet, does the things that the least of the least would do, is homeless. That's the way to greatness. 